First John. If you need a Bible, we have Bibles, everybody. We just got new Bibles. Nobody seemed very happy about that, very excited. If you don't have a Bible with you and you would like to get your hands on a copy, please raise your hand and, and uh, one of our guys will bring you a Bible. We are turning in our Bibles to the book of First John, 1 John. If you're new to the scriptures, you can look in the table of contents and find a page number. 1 John chapter 2 is where we're going to be at today. Verses 15 through 17. And when you're there, say amen. amen. All right. Let's do this. Follow along as I read. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world, and the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Let's pray. Father, we ask that as we come into your text that you would help us open our eyes that we might experience Jesus through your word this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said? Amen. Amen. Question, is it ever okay to hate? No, yes, no, no, yes. Yes, no, come on. We got to be of one accord in this room. Answer, yes. It is okay to hate. Are there not some things in this world that we ought to hate? The problem is we typically love the wrong stuff and we hate the right stuff. In John Bunyan's book, Pilgrim's Progress, he begins with uh, this, this scene of the main character, Christian, who is living in the city. The city is called the City of Destruction. Christian receives news that the city is about to be destroyed. And so Christian runs out of the city. His friends and his family are running after him. They think he's lost his mind. And according to the people that live in the city of destruction, he has lost his mind. But Christian has a bigger view of reality. He knows something about reality that the people who are staying there don't know. And so Christian is running from all that he's ever known. He has, in the truest sense of the word, hated the city of destruction. Why? It's not until we get to the end of the book that we begin to, or that we, that we see what Christian was running toward. Christian is running toward a city that has a foundation, a city that is going to last forever. He's running toward the celestial city, a city with roots, a city that is eternal. He's forsaking all. He's leaving behind what he's known to receive something so much better. Are you loving that which is quickly fading? Are you loving that which is going to one day be destroyed? You see, we are all born with these inclinations to love sin. And as a matter of fact, 
there are religious sects and forms of Christianity which uh, present a way of Christianity that would allow you to profess Christ, yet really live with all of your sinful desires being gratified. In John's day, the church was dealing with something just like that. They were dealing with this movement which was saying, look, do what you feel. Go with your, go with your guts. And you can still have uh, all of the blessings of the faith. And so then, some Christians, genuine Christians, are left confused. Am I prudish? Am I the one that's ridiculous? Am I the one that's lost my mind? Because it seems like there are so many other Christians out there who have their cake and eat it too. There's so many Christians out there who profess Christianity, so I guess they're going to heaven, yet they're living like everybody else. It discourages genuine Christians who are abandoning sin when movements come along and tell Christians, you don't need to abandon sin. This is what John's dealing with. And so John then wants to expose the counterfeit, and he also wants to encourage the faithful in the room. We're in 1 John. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 showed us that Jesus Christ is the safe place for sinners. What we've been doing now are a series of tests that we may know that we are in him. Uh, the first test was the test of obedience in chapter, three, uh, chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. We know that we're in him when we obey. The second test that we started last week is the test of love. And you could say last week was part one of the test, love for others. But now we turn the page, we thought the test was over, and there's like this additional bonus test. Remember those in school? Like, here's your uh, extra credit, if you would. Here's the, a, a little additional test for, for, uh, on, on this topic of love, and that is this. Not do you love others, but do you love the world? So positively speaking, love for others is a sign that you love God. Negatively speaking, if you love the world, it's actually a sign that you don't love God. We actually should then hate the world if the world is fading, if the world is being uh, destroyed, the things of the world. There's a disdain that we should have for the ways of the world. So how do we hate the world? Well, let's get into 1 John and talk about that a little bit. First, we've got to know what loving the world even means. Because as I read this and as I study this, we, I'm immediately met with a problem. In John's other writing in the Gospel, in John chapter 3, verse 16, it says, For God so, finish it, loved the world. So in John 3, 16, it says, God loves the world. But then over here, in his letter, 1 John chapter 2, John says that Christians ought to hate the world. Well, how can we reconcile these? Are we supposed to love the world, or are we supposed to hate the world? Which is it, John? Well, the answer to that dilemma is pretty easy, and that is that words often have different meanings, don't they? So love, the word love, can have different meanings. Uh, in John chapter 3, 16, we're talking about God's holy, perfect love for sinners. We're talking about a redemptive kind of love, a, a love that is, that is good and, and pure. 
And in 1 John, we're talking about a lustful kind of love. The Bible uses the word love in different ways. For example, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, Christians are told, or God's people are told, to love God with all their heart, mind, and soul. That same word in Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, is also used in 2 Samuel chapter 13, verse 4, for Amnon, who loved Tamar and then raped her. It's the same word. It says Amnon loved Tamar. Well, that's a different kind of love, isn't it? Than the kind of love that we are supposed to have for God. My point is, love can mean some, something different. We are to love, but we are not to love. Are you guys tracking with me? World can mean something different as well. So God loved the world in John 3.16. World there means uh, the broken cosmos. It's, it's the, the image of God in humanity. It's the goodness of creation that God loves, that God is restoring in John 3.16. But world in 1 John chapter 2 is a reference not to the redemptive picture of the world, but rather to the sinful ways of the world. The sinfulness of mankind. So we should love the world in the same way that God loves it, but we should not love the world in the way that the world loves it. Are you tracking? I mean, this is important. I don't want you guys to miss this. If we misunderstand this, we're going to get some things really wrong, like the uber-conservative types who who look at everything in the world as bad. Good food, no, that's worldly. Sexual relations with your wife, whoa, just don't enjoy it. As long as you're just trying to have a baby, whatever. Or some, some uh, forms of Christianity that some of us grew up in where, you know, no, no, uh, don't dress like the world, don't listen to secular music, uh, no dancing, no alcohol, no, there's like five or six things that you can't do, all right? Because it's too worldly. That's not, that's not a right understanding of this. As a matter of fact, in Colossians, the Apostle Paul says that such regulations have appearance of wisdom, but they lack any value. But no, we are to love the world in a way that receives the goodness of creation and in a way that goes on mission in the same way that Christ is on mission, but we are to hate the world in that we don't participate in the sinful ways of the world. It's a scuba diver of the water. No, scuba divers, they're in the water, but fish are of the water. For a fish, the water is, that's, that's the fish environment. But a scuba diver breathes the air. A scuba diver takes his environment into the water with him. His, his life source is not of the water, though he's in the water. In the same way, Christians are of the world, but we are not in the world. We are different than the fish. 
our life source comes from above. Our, our life source comes from somewhere else. We are breathing the oxygen of Jesus Christ in the world. And so therefore then, we don't love the world. Jesus is overturning the ways of the world. We are a community of sent ones into the world. This is why, by the way, church membership matters. Church membership is a way to say, I belong to these people. I, I, my citizenship is elsewhere. And when we gather here, we're, we're, we're getting oxygen together so that we might go back into an environment that is not entirely ours. Secondly, We've got to know why loving the world and loving God doesn't work. We've got to know why loving the world and loving God doesn't work. Imagine there was a man living in Maryland, and he was going to marry a girl in California. And he has to get to California in order to marry his bride, but he doesn't have a whole lot of resources. He's, he's doing this on a limited budget. And so he takes off in his old beat-up car from Maryland trying to get to California, and he is totally content with sleeping in the back seat of his car. His car breaks down. Now he's hitchhiking. He jumps onto the back of a truck. He's totally content with staying in Dingy's motel. It doesn't matter to him how he gets to California. The, the, the luxury of his travel is not his focus. The, the, the fact that he's got to hitch a ride isn't as big of a deal to him as whether or not he makes it to California. The Hiltons have lost all glamour for him. He just is on a mission to get to California. And no matter what kind of life uh, he lives in the meantime, no matter how challenging the travels are going to be, nobody can steal his joy. You see, the Christian is on a mission. We're going somewhere. And it doesn't quite matter how we get there. We're not so concerned about the Hiltons or the luxury cars. We just are on a mission to get to the celestial city, to get the, to the kingdom that has roots. And so therefore then, enjoying this world, the sinful ways of this world, and then trying to love God just doesn't work. That's like trying to drive a car in water. There are some things you just can't do that are incompatible. You cannot love the world and at the same time love God. And then he goes on for us here in chapter 16 to explain what he means. He shows us what the world, the ways of the world are. This is basically a summary of sin. Look at it. In verse 16, he says, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. So in verse 15, he gives us this claim. If anybody loves the world, you don't love God. In case you are not tracking with the author, he gives you pretty clearly, like, this is a list. Let me, let me explain to you what I mean by the world. And this is what he means, the desires of the flesh. Let's break this down. Desire there, that's, that's, that's a reference to a lustful kind of desire. Desiring something that is not yours. Desires of the flesh. What are the deeds of the flesh? Galatians chapter 5. If you turn there with me really quick. If you're new to your Bibles, don't worry about it. Just listen. If you're quick on the draw, turn to Galatians chapter 5. 
in chapter 5, verse 17, it says, For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. The desires of the spirit are against the flesh. So Paul here is saying the same thing. Paul is saying that these works of the flesh, these deeds of the flesh, are against the Holy Spirit of God. You can't enjoy one and believe that that's somehow compatible with the other. And then he goes on to break it down for us. In verse 19, he says, Now the works of the flesh are evident. And then he gives us a, 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 a list. He says sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. <laughs> Meaning go ahead and just keep on coming up with some other examples. Those are the deeds of the flesh. But then he goes on to say, and this is the fruit of the Spirit. Look at verse 23. Verse 22, rather, he says, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and against things there are no such law. Listen, here's the test. What's easier for you in your flesh? What just feels most natural to, to to your flesh? Drunkenness and sexual immorality or patience and being kind? Now, that's a rhetorical question, but I know your answer. In our flesh, what feels easier and more natural is to just enjoy sex unrestrained, sexual immorality, just whatever I feel like doing with my body to, to just get buzzed in the process and get drunk. Well, that feels more, yeah, okay, cool. Sounds like a party. But patience and kindness, oh, in our flesh that makes us cringe. We're not born wanting to be patient. We're not born wanting to be kind. What we're born wanting to do is to gratify all of our desires. This is why we call these the fruit of the Spirit, because you don't naturally have these desires. We naturally desire sin. The only way that we will desire things like patience and being kind is if God changes our desires, does something inside of us, and gives us a desire to be patient more than we desire to be drunk. This is the fruit of the Spirit. And so what he's saying here in his letter going back to 1 John is that the desires of the flesh, these deeds, these works of the flesh, they don't come from God. That's that's not becoming of a Christian, but rather a Christian is someone who's changed by the Holy Spirit and who has new desires. He goes on, he says, the desires not only of the flesh, but the desires of the eyes. So desires of the flesh would be the temptations that come from the outside in. I'm sorry, desires of the flesh, I just got this backwards. Desires of the flesh are temptations that come from the inside out. Feelings that you have, inclinations that you have. Desires of the eyes, rather, would be temptations that come from the outside in. Meaning you didn't know that you were attracted to pornography until you saw it. Meaning you didn't know that you lusted after that man's wife until you saw her. Meaning you didn't know that you lusted after that car until you saw it drive by. Meaning you didn't know that you wanted that high until you felt it. 
the desire, the things that we experience, the things that we see, and we say, I want, I want that. Now, this is haunting. Because in Matthew chapter 6, verse 20, 22, it tells us that the, the, the eyes are the lamp of the body. In Psalm 37.7, we, we read that the, as the eyes swell in fatness, the heart overflows with follies. Why is this haunting? This is haunting. Why? It's because what we see here is that the eyes and the heart are connected. Meaning, what you gaze upon is what shapes your heart. Why is it that our hearts are so messed up? Is it because we're gazing upon the wrong things? Is it because we're lusting after things that are not ours to have? The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes. And then he goes on and says, the pride of life. Now, this is not someone who's just proud of their life. You know, I'm proud of my life. I'm proud of who I am. I'm proud of the, uh, uh, my children and, and uh, my, my marriage. I'm proud of my life. But that's not what he's talking about. Pride here is a word for boastfulness. Or uh, it could be the braggadocious one. And life is a reference to all of the things of the world, worldly possessions. So this would be a reference to somebody who boasts in worldly possessions. And you know this kind of person. This is the kind of person who, who if, you, if you get paid 15 bucks, they brag about the fact that they got paid 30 bucks. If you save up and you buy a 2004 Honda Accord, they're going to point out the fact that they have a Mercedes. Meaning they're always trying to one-up you. They're always trying to show you that they're a little bit better than you are because of what they have. And it's easy to point fingers at other people and forget to examine our own hearts. In what ways might we be trying to lift ourselves up and show others that we are better than them because of what we have? I heard someone once say that it's no fun to have a nice car if nobody covets it. I mean, what makes it fun driving down the road is knowing that that guy who's walking really would love to have your car. What's up, buddy? I've even heard people say this, well, me meaning well, they'll say things like, be thankful for who you are because there are a whole lot of people out there that want to be you. Be thankful for what you have because there are a whole lot of people out there that would love to have what you have. Now, that sounds nice, but is the reason we ought to be thankful for what we have because someone else is coveting it? You see, we can't shake our sin. I mean, even, even as we try to appreciate our own life, what we're doing is we're, we're trying to see how we, in some ways, have something that someone else does not have. We're, we're, we're so wrapped up in the pride of life, we actually believe that we might be a little bit better because we have a degree that someone else doesn't have. Because we've been able to save up and buy something that someone else was not able to do. What Paul is saying is these things, the, the, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, they're not from God. And if they're not from God, then where are they from? Satan, the enemy of God. David Allen points out that 
Adam and Eve fell for these very reasons. Think of the fall in the Garden of Eden. They look at the fruit, and and it says this, they saw that the fruit was good for food. That's the desires of the flesh. It was a delight to the eyes, the desires of the eyes. And it was desired to make one wise, the pride of life. What Paul is listing here is the very root of all sin. It is a summary of all of the ways of the world, and his point is that these things do not come from God. And people screw this up. I'm telling you, there are religious people out there who want to use religious language, yet they practice the ways of the world. And then there are the irreligious who say, well, forget religion, not for me, because I love the ways of the world. I've had people tell me that. Well, I, I can't be a Christian. I, I, I can't do these things because I love all of this. Okay. But do you know that the Christian is someone who realizes that God gives us new desires? The kingdom person is someone whose desires have been transformed. And they now desire what is right and holy and pure and good and lovely. They no longer desire the ways of the world. We are like that man traveling on a mission trying to get to California for the new bride. Yet our bride is is ourselves, our groom, is the one that we are moving toward. He is the goal. He is the prize, and we are on a mission. We are on a mission to get to that city that has foundation, that has roots, that will last forever and ever. And the ways of the world, our, our, our traveling methods are no longer as important to us. Our eyes are fixed on Him. So thirdly, friends, we must know that God's way is better. And that's how he ends this in verse 17. He shows us that God's way is indeed better. John Piper tells this illustration of a room. Imagine a a large room, and there's many people in this room, and there's a rope going from one side of the room all the way to the other. And around the edges of the room are all of of, of the sins of the world. We've got sexual immorality, uh, girls, uh, girls. Drunkenness, parties, drugs, uh, stacks of cash all over the place. Just everything that the room has to offer there for your enjoyment. Word comes then to all of these people who are enjoying the room that the floor is about to drop 1,000 feet. And all who are standing on the floor are going to fall 1,000 feet to their death. The only way to survive is to grab hold of the rope. The problem is that the rope is right smack dab in the middle of the room and you can't reach all of the good things that the room has to offer from standing, clinging to the rope. One man goes and he grabs the rope and he clings to the rope and he sees all of his friends enjoying all that the room has to offer. Sexual immorality, drunkenness, power, greed. And hours pass, and the floor doesn't drop, and he begins to wonder, maybe I'm the crazy one. 
I'm sitting here missing all of these delights while everybody else seems to be having a good time. Maybe they're the ones that are right, and I'm the crazy one that that is believing that this floor is going to drop. But then one day it happens, and the floor drops. A thousand feet, and everybody falls to their death. All of that sexual immorality, all of that greed, all of that power, all of those stacks of cash, it all drops a thousand feet, and the only one hanging, the only one who survives is the man who's clinging now to the rope. And as that last quarter falls out of that man's pocket and he sees it drop a thousand feet, do you think he cares? Absolutely not, because what good is it to him now? All he has is the hope of this rope. Look at verse 17. This is what Paul or John tells us, he says, The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. It's all fading. It's all disintegrating. All of the sinful ways of the world are quickly fading. Listen, human marriages will not last forever, but how you love your spouse will. The loneliness of being a single will not last forever, but how you steward your singleness today and love God and trust Him in the midst of it will. The problems that you have at work or unemployment will not last forever, but how you love God in the midst of these challenges of life will. Lifting ourselves up as better than others, as uh, one race over another race, or one gender group over another gender, these things will drop. And what will last is love. You see others enjoying all that the world has to offer. And I know those of you who are genuine, you're you're true, you're real, you're looking at it and you're wondering at times, have I been duped? Am I the one that is sacrificing all of the pleasures that the world has to offer? Friends, I want you to cling to Jesus Christ as your only hope. There are those who are delighting in the world. They're spending all of their cash on themselves. They're clinging to power, and they're using their power over others. It's all going to drop. All of the porn sites are going to drop. All of the fortune is going to drop. All of the fame is going to drop. All of the the clinging to power is going to drop. All of the sinful pleasures are going to drop. All the fancy houses are going to drop. All the cars are going to drop. All the drugs are going to drop. All the drunkenness is going to drop. What's going to remain? What's going to remain is the Word of God that lasts forever. And those who are standing on that rock will remain with Him. Are you standing on the rock of the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you clinging to the Lord Jesus Christ? Look at one another, friends. These relationships founded upon the rock will remain. As we come to church, we come as a, as a, to some degree a place of respite. It's a place where we come together and we're reminded of this fact that we're not clinging to Christ in vain. 
and that what we enjoy here and the love that we have with one another will last for all of eternity and we cling to it. Do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior? Do you know that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins? Do you know that the punishment for your sin was placed onto his body and he bore all of God's wrath for your sin? Do you know that his righteousness is offered to to be donated into your account? Jesus, three days later, rose from the dead and he stands across hell and, and death and he says to all who are weary, he says, come to me. Turn from your sin. Trust in me, and I will give you rest. We have the promise in Christ that we are forgiven of our sins now and that we will one day be raised with Christ and live forever with God. Jesus was the first to be raised of his kind. And if he is raised, we will be raised with him never to die again. John says it. He reminds us of it. For whoever does the will of God, turning to Christ, trusting in the gospel, that person abides forever. What is our response? Our response is to run to Jesus Christ, to abandon the city of destruction, to run with all that we have toward Jesus Christ, to abandon all that we've ever known, all that we've ever loved, all that we've ever clung to, and to run to Jesus Christ as our only hope in life and in death. You know that you are in Christ when you are not loving the world, the ways of the world, the deeds of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life. They're not from God. You know that you're in Him when you feel like the strange one in the world. You know that you are in Him when you cling to Jesus Christ. Cling to Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this text. We, we thank You for this, uh, this great reminder for us that Jesus Christ is our only hope in life and in death. And we pray, God, that we would cling to Him with all that we have. I pray that we would forsake all of the sinful ways of the world, that when we trip, when we fall back into our former ways, that we would in that moment remember the gospel, that we would remember that we are saved not because we do so well on this journey, but we are saved because Jesus did so well. God, I pray that we would run to him with all that we have, that we would find our righteousness in him, Give us new desires. I pray that we would desire holiness more than we desire sin. I pray that we would desire the fruit of the Spirit more than we would desire the deeds of the flesh. I pray for the individual in this room right now who feels so uh, weighted from guilt. Uh, The world has uh, pounded upon us and uh, the person who's delighted in the deeds of the flesh and God I, I pray that they would know that Jesus Christ is their savior I pray that they would know that they have hope and life in him and I pray that they would cling to him
encourage us. For the person who might be a counterfeit in this room, God, I pray that you would expose them, even right now, that they might run to Jesus. God, for the faithful believer, the, the, the genuine Christian who has been clinging to Christ and is sometimes filled with these doubts of whether or not I'm doing the right thing, whether or not I'm the crazy one, forsaking all that the world has to offer, I pray that you would encourage them that they might know that this is actually a sign that they are in the safe place of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.